What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. A compliance-driven training focus shouldn't be your first path to building a high-performance team. If you're not tapping into the power of each individual on your team, you'll have a lot of challenges in getting traction. Tapping into the human stories of each of your team members is the path to sustained high performance. That's the philosophy that centers Sajel Thacker and drives us forward. So who is Sajel? So let me give you a little bit of background on Sajel. She's on a mission to educate and empower people and create a world where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. She's a former employment law attorney, a two-time TEDx speaker, and the founder and chief civility officer at Train Extra, a woman-owned and minority-owned training consulting firm where she helps leaders create positive, safe, and respectful workplaces through customized training and coaching. Sajal is also the chief culture officer of Nobody Studios, a venture capital firm that aims to create 100 compelling companies, guiding them from ideation to full-scale company validation. Sajal? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to talking about a very important topic to me today. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the topic too, because it intersects in a lot of different areas that, that I regularly talk about. I describe myself as a megaphone for DEIB and DEIB messengers and practitioners. So there's going to be an element of the conversation that I'm, I'm going to be digging deep in. But before we dive into the conversation, I know that I covered a fair bit of ground on your bio, but I think the first thing that would be helpful is for you to get our listeners up to speed on any of the things that we didn't talk about in your bio that's going to lend some context to the conversation that we're going to have. The conversation that we're going to be talking about today is so important, but it's often over, overlooked, right? The impacts of unconscious bias. and for me, a, a big part of my journey, both personally and professionally, has been learning about how unconscious bias affects us all. And this goes all the way back to the beginning, right? My parents are immigrants from India. They moved here in the 70s. And I grew up in a predominantly Italian neighborhood in a suburb of Chicago. And my parents were as traditional as it comes. So they barely spoke English when they came here. And growing up, was not as easy as I would have liked because at home, my parents were, we, they were eating Indian food. They were wearing Indian clothes. It was like living back in India. And then outside the house, it was being in America and embracing the American culture. So I really had a duality of the Indian and American cultures at play as I was growing up. And then on top of that, I also have had dealt with bias being on the receiving end of since we were the only Indian family being harassed and bullied by kids in school, people in that town made it very clear that we were not wanted there. So I dealt with bias really from the beginning of my journey, and it has really shaped my career and the work that I do now. When you talk through some of the experiences that you had when you were growing up, 
I immediately connected to it because I come from the same Indian uh, background. When you're describing speaking the native language at home and then English out in the world, absorbed in the culture at home and then trying to integrate into the culture externally, all of that stuff connected. The one question that I have about that experience that I'm curious about is that I don't know if you experienced this in your upbringing, but my immigrant upbringing was keep your head down, get good grades, blend in and try to assimilate. And that created some conflict where I never really felt like I fit in the American crowd and I definitely didn't fit in the Indian crowd. What was your experience growing up where you're battling between these two cultures and just trying to make the best way forward you could? My experience was the same as yours. I, I and, and that's really, in my second TEDx talk, that's really the topic I focused in on was feeling excluded growing up. And like you said, not feeling like you fit in or that you belong to either culture and just feeling like you're always letting everybody else down and you're trying to please everyone, but you're not making anyone happy. So that definitely resonates with me. I talk about this one incident in my first TEDx talk where somebody had left a note on my locker door and they said, go back to your country. And that's just one example of the bias that I was dealing in. But I'll, I'll bring that, I'll tie that into what we're talking about is when that happened and how my parents responded to that situation and how that made me feel even more left out. Because here you would think that your parents would understand, could provide some compassion and empathy in that situation, but they really didn't know that how much it impacted me. And so it really left me feeling, and I'm sure you can relate to this too, is that you're all alone. You're just trying to navigate through the pain, through the isolation, through the exclusion on your own. And so that's why I, I really wanted to do the second talk was to highlight two things that, you know, even when we don't have the resources as children, especially children of immigrant parents and don't have those resources, that there still is things that we can do, that we could take our control back and how I went about doing that. But that situation of go back to your country, that was a turning point for me, because at this point now I had been dealing with this type of behavior for several years now of not feeling, it wasn't just a one-time event, right? This was the one that finally was the one that put me over the edge, right? It was the one that broke me to the point where I realized I have to address this and figure out how I'm going to move forward. And I agree with you. It doesn't matter whether we were born here or not, because again, yes, I was born here, but the way that I was treated it didn't matter where I was born. It was really that we were not like everybody else in this town. And that was the main difference. We could spend a lot of time swapping stories about weird stuff that happened. Uh, I came here during the, when Indiana Jones had just recently and the Temple of Doom had recently hit the theaters. So I'm part of the feral Gen X generation. So we couldn't even bring up those sort of conversations to my parents because they were busy working. And I was more or less raising my younger sister. Your point about the loneliness is pretty, pretty interesting because I think a lot of immigrants can relate regardless of where the point of origin is. When I think about your trajectory is you were an employment law attorney and then period of time passed and you've transitioned into these multiple entrepreneurial positions. Share with us a little bit about that journey and what prompted the bounce or the hop from law to entrepreneurship. When I started off my litigation career, I was an employment law attorney. So I was representing leaders that were actually accused of harassment discrimination. So that was a big pivot, right? Because I think when you hear about my story and what I went through as a child, as a little girl, 
the bias that I dealt with, the prejudice, the discrimination. I think most people would probably expect that I would have been one representing victims. And I actually ended up doing the opposite, right? And that that's really something significant, a part of my journey, because I got to see bias from a whole different perspective and realize that bias is not one dimensional, it's multidimensional. And we're all basically vulnerable to it, susceptible to it, and victims to it because of the, our cultures, our surroundings, our workplaces, our religions, and so on. And doing that work really helped me see the big picture of bias. And when I was working with these leaders and I was realizing that, wait a second, why are we ending up in court? Why are these lawsuits being filed? And I always came back to the same thing, was that had we intervened properly at the very outset of this negative behavior, had we coached this person, this leader, with, let's say they made a, a, a microaggression, comment without being aware that it was going to be harmful to somebody else. Had we gotten in as HR or as leaders in that organization and properly coached that person in the right way and gave them some education on why that was a microaggression, why that could be harmful to somebody else, then a lot of these lawsuits would have never ended up in court. And so I found myself literally coaching and educating a lot of these leaders rather than litigating or wanting to litigate these cases, right? And so that really opened the door for me to look at how can I use my skill set as an attorney to come in, not after the fact, and deal with the situation after the harm had already been done, but how do I flip that? I want to get involved before. I want to be involved proactively so we can help create or help organizations create those cultures where those types of behaviors are less or that we can mitigate those types of behaviors from happening. So I started doing that. And so I'm still an employment law attorney. I'm still licensed in California, but I started doing more of that on the side. And then when my son was born, I made a decision that I wanted to be at home with my son. And so I started my hustle part of my career at that point where I started working from home. I started teaching at some universities. I started doing a lot of training and educating and coaching on the side. And finally, in 2017, I said, you know what? This is what I want to do. This is my calling. I want to make a difference. I want to work with organizations. So I started my company in 2017 and have been working with companies worldwide since. One of the things that I, I'd like to have you expand on. So we've talked about bias in general, the dimensions of bias that exists within the organization. You actually brought up microaggressions. And there's going to be, probably not in this audience, but there's going to be some component of the audience that hears all this stuff and probably reacts to it in a pretty negative way and says something to the effect of, oh, this is all just soft grievance mongering stuff for people that are looking to get a shortcut to a payoff. Why is that flawed thinking when it comes to building a high-performing team? You hit that sore point right there because bias, that word in and of itself is a buzzword. The, the reality is that we all have unconscious biases, people, places, or things. It could be a positive. Bias is just another word for preference, our natural preferences. Now, it could be a bias in favor of a person, place, or thing, or it could be a bias against a person, place, or thing. So we all prefer some things over others. But as you said, that word in and of itself has a negative connotation associated with it. So a lot of times when people hear the word itself, they shut down. And they close off, which harms both ourselves and everyone around us. So we can't move the needle 
until people understand what bias is. And that that really is what led to me doing my first TEDx talk, because I realized if I had learned about bias so late in my career, I learned about what unconscious bias is, was way late into my legal career. And that was really frustrating for me because I'm like, wait a second, I'm making all kinds of decisions, important decisions every day as an attorney that are impacting people's lives. And how come I haven't been educated on the concept of unconscious bias and how it works? And so when I learned about it, it's one of those things that you see and you can't unsee it. And so it became a personal passion for me to learn as much as I could about unconscious bias and to learn about how we, it's normal, we're all vulnerable to it. If you have a brain, you have bias and that we have to work intentionally to recognize it in and of ourselves so we can grow beyond our preconditioning. And as I started doing this work, I realized, wait a second, there is a huge lack of awareness, education and information out there on what it is and how it works. And the more I did it, the more I realized that people just don't realize how it basically runs our lives and it impacts every single decision that we make. And it can lead to very harmful outcomes like prejudice and hate unless we start to recognize it within ourselves. And so it's one of those situations where it's, we can't solve this problem until we start talking about it. And so I really want to thank you again for inviting me to have this important conversation so we can start to change the narrative around unconscious bias. And it, it starts with taking off that, as you said, taking off that guilt, that shame, that fear that our society is built around what bias is and to empower other people so that they can start doing the work on themselves. Because until they do it on themselves, you can't have a team that's high performing. There's one particular aspect of it that you reference that I think it's really important to, to call out. And you use the phrase conditioning. And when we look at conditioning in relationship to bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it's baked into the American media ecosystem. And if you think about it, and I don't know if your experience is going to exactly align with mine, but there's from the time that we're growing up, we're, we're given this narrative about what we're supposed to like, what we're not supposed to like. Who's the good team? Who's the bad team? What's the force for freedom and what's the force for tyranny? And a lot of this stuff in the macro scale and then the micro scale, it, it's a type of storytelling that conditions you in a way mm -hmm. to keep you lazy. So the irony of it is that we all know that exists. If I had that conversation with yeah. anybody else, people would say, yeah, that's true. And then when you bring up issues like bias, there are groups of people that will pull back, like you said, and shut down because they don't want to confront it and, and actually make positive steps to change how they react. So I want to dig in a little bit further in this particular area. So you mentioned some far end of the scale of how bias can show up, and that's hate and racism and all that sort of stuff. But it shows up in some pretty insidious ways when you think about the employee life cycle. Now, when you were going through your journey, you started asking yourself the question, why are we taking this to litigation? There's a lot of things that you could have done beforehand that prevented that from happening. So I'd like you to share with us some of the ways that bias exists in various areas of the employee life cycle, like talent attraction or promotion, and what people can do to mitigate the risk of being biased in those processes. Just to get everybody on the same page, when we're talking about bias, it's the attitudes, it's the stereotypes that can impact our own understanding 
our actions, our decisions. It's not about whether you're a good person or a bad person. So I want to make that very clear. It impacts everybody, no matter how well-intentioned you are. We're all vulnerable to it. And really, it's a product. These are snap judgments we make because of the the flood of information that's constantly coming at us. So they've done a ton of research in this area and neuroscience has come a long way in the last decade where they've said that we're processing millions of pieces of information every single second. And so this information is coming at us from, like you said, the media, social media, or what we experience at home, our cultures, our religions, who we interact with, where we live. So basically, Our lived experiences, along with our hardwiring, result in these sort of categorizations that our brain is making of this information that's constantly coming at us. So we see somebody. We may not know anything about them, but we see them visually, and our brain is already making all these judgments about that person because of what we see. And some of those things could be about the the way the person's skin color is, their gender, their age, their race. It could be anything. The kind of music you listen to, the kind of sports you like. It doesn't even have to be your primary layers of diversity. It could literally be anything, your accent, how your hair is. It could be anything at all. And so when you talk about how it can impact the employee life cycle, it impacts every single stage of the employee life cycle. And that's why it's so important to understand that There are tools that are available to each and every single one of us that could help us identify them. So again, having these hidden biases or even conscious or unconscious biases isn't the problem. The problem is when you have them and you don't know about it. And so now it's resulting in harmful outcomes. So there are these quick, these judgments that we make about people based on our own limited life experiences that really at work can give certain people unearned advantages and yet other people can get unearned disadvantages. So I'll just give you one example. When we talk about the employee life cycle, we know that organizations that are that care about diversity, which if you don't now, you're, pretty, you're not going to last for long, but we understand the business case for diversity was made decades ago. So organizations that recognize that they're, we're only as good as our employees, we spend a lot of time and resources on getting the most talented individuals in the door. But let's say now you haven't addressed bias in your interviewing process. So something as simple as my name, Sejal, can be viewed as being biased by somebody on the hiring team. So now if you've got a team of recruiters in your HR department that have that don't understand unconscious bias, and now they see a name like Sejal, I may not, my resume may not be looked at. They may not give it enough weight. They may assume that I'm not qualified for the job because they don't know where I'm from or whether I speak the language just based on my name. There's tons of research out here that says if you have a name that's ethnic sounding or can be associated with certain race or ethnicity, you're less likely to get a callback or to get have your resume even reviewed. So that's just one example of how we can creep into your hiring process. So again, you have to take a look at each of your processes, your policies that you have within your organization and see where you might be able to mitigate bias at each of those processes. Going back to your original question, how can you mitigate bias? The first step is to learn what the biases are, is make that commitment as an organization that you're going to learn not only as about your own personal biases, because we all have our own hidden personal biases, so we have to do that work, but also to look at it from an organizational standpoint 
to go through and look at all your processes, your procedures, to make sure that you're identifying where those biases might live so that you can then put into place strategies. Now, since every organization is different, or I'm going with this, that there's no one size, every organization is going to have this bias. Now, we know certain areas that are more vulnerable than others that we can start with. But I think the other point I want to make too is, yes, there's a lot of talk about diversity and we want diversity, but I, I want to point out for people that are watching or listening to this, that one really good way of mitigating bias is to embrace diversity at every level of your organization. So I'm talking about building diverse teams, not just at the ground floor or not just in terms of gender or ethnicity. I'm talking about all layers, especially the ones of the, the people that are going to be making the decisions. So the key is to ensure you have decision-making bodies that are representative of your larger workforce. So I'm talking about background, experiences, and diversity of thought. So you have to look at diversity from a broader perspective, not just your primary layers of diversity. And when you do that, then you have people that think differently than each other that are going to feel more comfortable challenging status quo. So that's a really good way to start mitigating the biases that existed in your entire organization. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. Yeah, I'm, I agree. There's a reason why I usually put myself on mute when the guest is speaking, because your point about embedding diversity at all levels of the organization, yes. that is a critical point that I think a lot of organizations still get wrong. And the reason why it's important, and I especially will put it in the context of, of the immigrant perspective, or at least the underrepresented perspective, by nature, we are less likely and no group is a monolith, but we are less likely to speak up or put ourselves at risk within the world of work. So when you're looking at the issue of how do we get an organization that's diverse at all levels, it signals to that ground floor employee from an underrepresented community that, hey, there's someone like me at the highest levels of leadership. So I have space to be who I am versus somebody that is in the background, not trying to rock the boat too much. So I think that's a really important thread to call out. Yeah. Really great conversation so far, Sajel. I think we've set the stage pretty well, but one of the things that, that I'm really curious about is moving the concept into action. So we've talked about mitigating bias. We've talked about embedding DEIB across the organization to get a better sense of belonging within those organizations. That all makes sense. There's an element of this that starts at the training side. And a lot of folks that might be listening to this might look at the things that we're talking about as a check the box solution. Let's just be in compliance and get this out of the way so we're not putting, putting ourselves at risk. Why is that the wrong mindset to be in when you're looking at solving these problems? I'll, I'll go back to why I started Train Extra. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission came out with a over 100 page report in 2016 that looked at compliance training that we've been doing for decades, for three decades, right? And I'm talking about your anti-harassment compliance training, which is when I think of check the box, that's an example of checking the box kind of training. And this report literally spelled out and became my business plan because it said, 
what we've been doing all this time has not worked. And the reason why it's worked is because it is for that compliance reason. We need to take this beyond compliance. We need to provide people with generalized civility training. And that's why I call myself the chief civility officer. Because here's the thing. When you put people that are different from each other, and we're all different from each other, each and every single one of us, we might have things in common, but we're still different from each other. What ends up happening is we want, we know we want people that are different from each other in our organizations. There's tons of benefits, innovation, creativity, enhanced decision-making, employee engagement, less lawsuits, talent retention, customers get are happier, higher morale, higher psychological safety. There's lots of reasons why we want diversity. But there are challenges that come along with it. And so when we talk about challenges, when you have people that think differently than each other and every organization's different, it's going to take time and effort and dedication to get everybody on the same page to reach consensus. This unfamiliarity, so if you think differently than me and I think differently than you, that what people end up doing in a workplace dynamics on teams is we, when we get unfamiliar, we start to put people in lumps. Oh, everyone that's like that. So we start stereotyping, which can now make people feel excluded, make people feel left out because now they feel uncomfortable. And then pretty soon misunderstandings and conflicts can occur if we don't manage these issues that are popping up. A lot of what ends up happening is unconscious bias starts to creep in into this process. When you have people that are different than each other, unless we understand what our own unconscious bias is, we can't mitigate it. So the problem with these compliance trainings is they don't understand, they don't go into detail about what unconscious bias is. What they do is they tell you what the law is, they tell you what the definitions are, and they tell you what to do if somebody violates the law, which is usually follow a complaint process, which basically says punt it to HR and let HR deal with it. And what I'm saying is the better approach is to be more proactive, is to create a customized plan, a training plan, a holistic plan that takes into account the diversity that you have present at your organization, that takes into account the kinds of issues that you're dealing with because of the diversity that you have present and that creating a, a customized, tailored plan to address those nuanced issues that you can't just, you can't just cover in the check the, in the box training. Because if you don't cover those issues, what's going to end up happening is you're going to have conflict. And that's where the lawsuits will start up. So that report, again, it's an EEOC report. It was come out in 2016. You can find it on Dr. Google. Really outlines what organizations need to do to move beyond your compliance sort of mindset and move more into a generalized civil and more inclusive culture. And so that's really what started my journey off when I read that report and I said, this is such a huge problem that we're seeing right now. And then when you start talking about compliance, which really is, if you think about it, is requiring organizations to do the bare minimum so that they meet the legal requirements. And again, I'm taking the exact opposite approach. I'm saying, let's not wait till it gets to be illegal behavior. Let's start addressing this earlier on. So when somebody engages in a microaggression, or even if it's some rude or insensitive behavior, let's start putting people on notice in a respectful, professional way. Because the problem in these situations, especially when you're dealing with these nuanced bias situations, is first of all, the person doesn't realize they're engaging in behavior that's harmful. 
So we can't go at it from the approach of tell HR about it and have them deal with it. This requires more of a coaching type of mindset. And so everybody needs to know how to do that, not just HR. So let's say, for example, if you and I are working together and you make a gender related comment. So this is, I'll just give you an example. This happened to me the other day. I was on the phone with three men. These are three people I've never even met before. We just got it. We got together from a, a group that we belong to and we we're having a, a conversation. And during that conversation, one of the individuals, again, I've never met with any of these three individuals. One of them automatically just said, hey, Sejo can take notes for us. I don't know this person. Why is this individual assuming that I could be that person to take notes? Because of gender stereotypes. Women typically, or maybe it was because I'm a minority. I don't really know why, but I was put in that situation. And this isn't the first time that's happened to me. It's happened many times. Even in my legal career, I've, I've had things, people say, oh, you don't look like a lawyer. Again, that's a stereotype. So lawyers are supposed to look a certain way. There's certain norms of success that we're used to. So these are just examples. So now, because that person said that, of course, it stung. But I know better than to assume that they had bad intentions. So I, I followed my own advice and handled it like I would advise anybody else to handle it. But this is what I'm talking about. Now, if I don't know how to handle that situation and I have to continue working with that individual, and let's say I don't, it's not my responsibility to say something to that person because I'm the one that just got harmed. It's literally the other three, other two people that were in that meeting. It's one of their responsibilities to speak up and say, hey, why are you asking her to take notes? Why don't you take notes? Or here, I'll take notes this time and somebody else could take notes next time. Of how people just don't know how to speak up. I did have a conversation with that person offline because I care about that person and I wanted to let them know so they don't do that to somebody else who might not be so kind in that situation. There's something that you mentioned in those examples that I think uh, we should flush out before we wind down the conversation. One was your comment that whenever you decide to go in and solve for these issues, an organizational leader shouldn't be looking at a cookie cutter plan or a templated plan. It needs to be customized towards your environment. The other component that you mentioned, and I think that there's a connection that I'm going to draw here, is you need to address these issues early on. And when I look at both of those things together and look at the landscape of the world of work and where most problems exist, when you look at line level employees, some of the top reasons they, that they leave an organization is because of issues with their manager. When you look at line level managers, they're often the least trained out of the management tier within an organization. So when you think about mitigating issues of bias, solving for better employee retention, does it make the most sense to focus at the line level manager and then train them up so you're actually building the, that leadership tier or do you advocate for a different approach? Yeah, I, I would say top-down approach is the best way of, of dealing with this. You have to get the buy-in from the leadership team because remember, bias creeps into our decision-making and then the top leaders are the ones making the significant decisions. So when you have processes, for example, in an organization that are vague, they're informal or they're, where you have transparency that's lacking. This is going to cause bias to creep into the decision-making. And so what we want to do is we want to combat that. So we want to establish structured and inclusive processes from the very beginning. So you mentioned Nobody Studios. This is a perfect example of an organization that I'm currently working with right now to help them create cultural strategies and processes. And so we were looking at our processes and how we're hiring, how we're promoting, how we're going to be doing performance evaluations to 
make sure that these processes are based on clear criteria and objective metrics so that we can minimize that subjective judgment. So I've recommended things like doing blind evaluations, hiding personal information from the resumes or the information that's coming in. We're looking at using inclusive language on our job postings to make sure that we're getting most of the diverse talent that we can. Something as simple as being mindful of your languages. Words matter and they could perpetuate stereotypes. And then the other thing I'll point out is now we have so much access to data. So use your data to drive your metrics and benchmarks. So assess, look at what the decisions that are being made to see if they're fair and objective. And so the way I tell leaders is when you're making decisions, whether it's hiring or promoting or firing someone, you have to think about it from the perspective of if I've got Sajel as a lawyer questioning my decisions a month from now, three years from now, can I justify my decision? Can I make it so that she'll know that I didn't make this based on my bias or my subjective judgment, that I'm using it based on data, that there's a structured and inclusive process that I'm relying on that is consistently applied across the board. So when you create these clear guidelines and processes, that's going to mitigate. Now, the other things that are really important to keep in mind for leaders is you want to make sure that you get feedback and you assess. you got to have those feedback mechanisms. You want to make sure you have anonymous feedback mechanisms because not everybody, like you said, a lot of us were told to keep our head down, work hard and move up. So not everybody is going to be comfortable bringing it up in a meeting. Do we encourage that? Do we try to say it's a safe environment? No matter how much you do that, sometimes people are just not going to be because of their personality or because of their upbringing. So you want to make sure you have mechanisms that not only are there for if, if I want to get someone in trouble or a disciplinary extent, but there might be situations where I don't want to get someone in trouble, but I need this behavior addressed. So you want to have mechanisms that are not just going to lead to some kind of discipline, but they're going to lead to some kind of coaching. And I think that's the problem, too, in a lot of organizations. They don't have these mechanisms available, so people don't know where to go. So what they do is they end up spending all this time researching online and hiring expensive attorneys rather than coming to their leaders or coming to their HR team for guidance because they're not being they're not feeling safe to do that. The other thing I think that's very important that I want to make sure that we talk about here too is start small. It's you can't. It's not like you're going to review every single process and policy that you have all at once. Pick the important ones. So if, if you're talking about talent retention, look, start there and start working on that while you're looking at what are some of the other areas that you need to focus in on. I think sometimes people get overwhelmed. And it becomes overwhelming. Oh, wait, we've been around for 20 years. What are you telling me? I got to go through every single. And that's not what we're saying. But look at situations where it's going to have the biggest impact and start there as you start to mitigate your bias within your organization. Awesome stuff, Sejo. You weren't kidding when you said that we could probably talk about this for a while. And there is a lot of nuance. And this is not a simple solution that, that somebody can actually go and execute on. So. What I'd like you to do is think about the entire arc of the conversation that we've had. And if you could build a framework that is going to be useful for a listener out there that wants to mitigate the bias that exists within their organization, what are the big things that they need to start with? The first step really is for all leaders and team members to really start thinking about making that commitment to where is my own hidden biases, make that commitment to learn about it. And so The first thing, one of the best practices that I like to share with people is self-awareness. 
start noticing whenever you're having an extremely positive or negative reaction to somebody that you're interacting with at work. And to start to ask yourself, why am I having this reaction to this person? And again, those strong reactions, whether it's positive or negative. So what, what, one of the things we see happening over and over again is we don't stop to sub objectively look at what, why we're making these decisions. So usually it's not based on the person in front of us. It's based on our own subjective assumptions that we're making about them. So start to focus more on why am I having these reactions? And then look for objective facts rather than just relying on your automatic assumptions or preconceived notions. So that's the first step. The second thing is there's a tool that I recommend everybody use. It's online. It's called the Implicit Association Test. It was, an, it was a, a tool that was created as a result of a collaboration from a lot of psychologists from Harvard, from University of Virginia, University of Washington. And it really just helps you identify your hidden biases. What are your natural preferences because of what you've gone through, what you've lived through in your life? So it's a self-awareness tool. And let me just tell you, you'll learn so much about your hidden biases. And the reason why doing this work is so important is because as you start doing this work, what you realize is a lot of our hidden unconscious biases are actually the exact opposite of what we currently believe. As I mentioned earlier, I was harassed and bullied by kids when I was growing up. And sometimes to this day, when I meet somebody who's Italian or reminds me of one of those kids, may look like somebody that bullied me when I was a child, I automatically have that negative bias against them. Now, standing here today, I'm out there advocating for diversity and inclusion. So that goes against the very essence of what I'm out there talking about. But I still have that bias because of what I went through. I can't change what I went through, but I can be aware of it. So when I have that reaction, I can stop and say, wait a second, check that bias at the door. So you'll learn so much about yourself when you take this online tool that, that you can start paying attention to and make sure you're not going to treat this person differently because of your hidden bias. And then the third tool I'll share with everybody that's listening is here's the thing about our unconscious bias. And these are the kinds of tools I share in my workshops that I do with teams across the globe is our unconscious biases are hidden from us. But when you spend a lot of time with people, especially the people that you care about, people that you love, that they come out in the things that we say and the things that we do. So sit down and have a conversation with somebody that will tell you the truth and ask them and say, hey, when I make important decisions about who to hire, who to promote, or make important decisions on who I interact with, do you think I'm biased in any way? And just be ready for what they'll tell you because they'll pick, they're picking up on your biases even though they're hidden from you. So again, three tools to help you start doing that work because until you know about what your biases are, we can't even get to the part of the conversation about how you're going to mitigate those biases. Your point about you have to have a solid understanding of yourself before you start trying to fix the world is, uh, is well taken. Yes. I know we covered a lot of ground in this conversation, but if uh, any of the listeners want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? I'm very active on LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always putting out resources on this topic that can be helpful. And then the second place would be on my website, trainextra.com. And it's T-R-A-I-N-X-T-R-A.com. Thanks for hanging out with us, Sejal. When I think about the conversation that we had, 
there's a lot of things that stand out, but there's a few things that I want to highlight that I think is going to be important for listeners to take away from the conversation. When I opened the show, I referenced the point that taking a compliance-driven approach is probably the wrong path to building a high-performance team. And here's what I mean by that. When you're looking at impacting any change, and especially change that involves deconstructing bias and building an organization that has embedded DEIB across the entire organization, you have to have a people-first mentality. And I referenced this in the conversation in the beginning, and we touched on this throughout the discussion, but if you're not meeting every person on your team at the individual level and building a custom solution that meets them where they're at, you're setting yourself on a path to create probably more problems than you're ready for. So you need to take a custom approach when you're looking at executing this kind of change. The other thing that stands out about the things that you mentioned, Sajel, is that you emphasize the coaching first mindset. And that's important to call out because when you take the compliance route, compliance isn't too far away from punishment. So if you're doing a compliance and punishment approach to organizational development, you're not going to get a lot of people that are going to be living the mission that you want them to live. So if you apply that coaching first mindset, you're going to have better connectivity between the stated mission and values of the organization and how the work is done and how successful you are across these dimensions that we're talking about. I appreciate you sharing with us. For those of you who have been listening to the conversation, we appreciate you hanging out. If you liked where this went, make sure you reach out to Sajel, leave us a review, and then tune in next time where we'll have another great leader joining us to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build a high-performing team. Three, thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.